0: Brexit and the transition period is over. The UK has left the European single market and we are no longer in the EU customs union. So we have finally found an agreement.
1: Glad tidings of great joy. Brexit means breakfast, Brexit. What
0: do you think about Brexit? What's that? Brexit is bothering both ends of the business spectrum.
1: Free trade deal between the UK and the EU
0: a deal. The headlines are zero tariffs or quotas on trade between the UK and the EU, changes to the rules on import and export licensing, and real differences for people trying to move goods between Britain and Northern Ireland or Britain and Europe. My name is Nick Wallace. I'm a journalist and this mini series for the London Business Hub is about helping businesses get to grips with the practicalities of Britain's new trading environment. In each of the episodes in this series, we've been pairing someone running a London-based company with an expert who can address their questions. Today, we are heading back to the border to discuss customs. Businesses are having to adjust to changes in both importing from and exporting to the European Union whilst dealing with a whole bunch of other problems caused by the pandemic – Our spotlight business is furniture, design and manufacturer, very good and proper. And joining me is the owner and chief executive, Ed Carpenter.
1: Hi, Ed. Hi there.
0: Ed, first of all, tell me a bit about your business. When did you start? What sort of stuff do you make? And how many people do you employ?
1: We started very slowly, uh, 2008, starting with just uh, just myself and my business partner, Andre. We're designers, first and foremost. So we started the business because we love design and we used to design furniture for other people. And in the financial crash of 2008, we decided to start making things for ourselves for the first time. And we've grown steadily over those years, so we now employ about 30 people.
0: How would you describe the products you make? Because they are beautiful looking things. I've I've had a look on your website, they are very lovely design pieces, but I'd like to hear it from you.
1: So first and foremost, we're a design-led furniture manufacturer. You're basically contemporary design with named designers and we sell our products mainly to businesses, um, workplaces and hospitality.
0: Yeah I mean I've been looking at your website offices and restaurants in America a museum in Malmo loads of stuff in the UK public furniture as well as furniture for businesses I hope this doesn't insult you and I I hope it's not a dirty word but what sets you apart from Ikea you could say that there are some elements of your design that you might perhaps remind you of of an upmarket Swedish furniture store what do you have that, that stops a client from saying oh why don't we just get you know 300 units off the shelf from Ikea instead of come to you?
1: Yeah that's a good question actually it's something I get asked a lot first and foremost we Sell to businesses in the commercial setting. So, if you were to put an IKEA chair that you would traditionally have in your kitchen into a restaurant with three hundred covers a day, it's not going to last very long. <laughs> but to be perfectly honest with you, so we we have to design and manufacture our products to stand the test of a commercial setting. It's all about quality and robust furniture, but trying to retain that kind of light feel and, and that that modern feel.
0: But if a, a customer takes a particular shine to one of your items, you do do retail for some of your lines don't
1: you we do yeah indeed yeah we do retail we offer our products to consumers direct to consumers obviously there is a market for a higher end product that we do
0: yeah i'd have to say i was, I was stunned by some of the designs on your website and i'd very much recommend that everyone goes and looks at very and ed tell me how brexit then has affected your business
1: so we design i mean i should say we do manufacture our own things in the uk but primarily we are a design house we source componentry from around europe actually around around the world mainly in europe and the uk and we bring things together so we go out there and we find a specialist in a particular type of work like tubular steel bending or plywood forming and we we find them we design a great product and we we bring things together under one roof from our facility in walthamstow we've got a very wide network of suppliers across europe and beyond in some cases and the UK so often one of our products might have three different suppliers two of them in Europe one of them up up in the West Midlands so obviously Brexit for us is you know before Brexit obviously that was that was a piece of cake <laughs> to bring those things together but since brexit it's become obviously you know more expensive and, and more challenging
0: let's divvy things up then we won't talk about exports first we'll talk about imports so what are the challenges then if you do find an excellent component maker and you want to ship their products into the uk so you can start assembling
1: one of your creations some of our suppliers are kind of questioning the, the minimum order of quantities that they want to supply us with so whereas before we might look at a minimum order of 50 euros they're sort of probably going up to 200 250 or more they want the whole they want a the whole truckload shipping costs have also massively increased uh, by up to i'd say up to 20 25% and that's partly due to people trying to recoup the lack of trade i think it's also compounded with the obviously the pandemic longer lead times so people are holding on to kind of components and sort of bulk ship things so one of our suppliers where we could have possibly you know looked at a two-week turnaround it's turned to a month turnaround and all these just all the extra admin you know there's admin fees for everything for the paperwork to fill out and it's just a general lack of clarity i think from from people in europe about what they're supposed to do now we might have been ready <laughs> you know but you know i think some of our european partners it's just a slightly just a bit wary it's hard to hard to put your finger on it although you know, the actual the bureaucracy is actually less for them at the moment, from what I understand. It's just a, a certain lack of confidence, which is a shame because the UK is great. As a furniture manufacturer or furniture designer, you know, we don't do everything in this country. And, and so we do need to look further afield for components um, because we haven't got a choice.
0: Well, what specific solutions then would you like to see brought to bear? Is it cultural or technical? Because I suppose that's or administrative. Where would the solution lie from where you're sitting right now?
1: From my understanding, it's just a lack of there's no singular system so whenever we um, work with, with a, um, a new haulage company we've got to go through a whole set of new admin processes with them all the customs paperwork has to be done again for instance so there's no centralized system that seems to be working very well at the moment so obviously if you're working with several different suppliers across europe they're all using different suppliers different hauliers and then you've got to do that all over again so that will be helpful. From what I can understand, the system that we've got in place at the moment is really designed much more for larger scale shipments, things like containers coming in from Asia and, and around the world. The type of logistics that a company like ours needs is like, you know, we often work on a group haulage service, so we might have two or three pallets on a truck that's coming um, across the border, um, and that truck might have, you know, 20 different companies' products on there. So You know, the system that's set up at the moment doesn't really work for, you know, for that kind of level, the level of goods that come across.
0: You obviously export all over the world. You export to some customers within the EU. What's changed there?
1: What we tried to do, when the pandemic hit, we realised that we were quite weak in consumer sales. So we set up an online shop and we started to do quite well in the EU. In the lead up to Christmas, I'd say... I mean, it's not a huge part of our business by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a growing one, which, which is nice. I'd say probably 50% of our e com sales was, was to the EU. And then obviously, as soon as January 1st came, it just completely stopped. And then anything that was sent out in that window over Christmas that the, the customer didn't quite get their order in time, Everything that was sent out got either got lost or got sent back to us, or DPD, who we used, refused to. And in fact, they just stopped. They just stopped sending anything to, to the EU. So we, we found that it's just incredibly, in terms of those sm- smaller packages, so we're talking about these consumer um, goods, it's just dried up.
0: It does sound like an opportune moment to perhaps introduce someone who may be able to help you and help me navigate this. Alexandra Turner is head of customs and export control at Customs Connect, which is a company which says its primary goal is to deliver real, measurable saving opportunities to all of its clients through specific professional advisory services including customs planning, autonomous duty suspensions, and export control. Alex, welcome. Hello. So you've been listening to what Ed has been saying, and I would imagine that a couple of red flags went up with you when you heard what he had to say about the state of trading between his company and the EU. What would you like to deal with first? Should we do imports or exports?
2: Probably imports, because that's going to be, I would say, of the two, most people are trying to get the goods in to do something with them first, rather than trying to worry about what they're going to do afterwards.
0: So we've got a twenty twenty five percent increase in costs, longer lead times, minimum orders being demanded, and huge amounts of admin on top. What does Ed need to be thinking about, looking at, and perhaps hoping to put in place to reduce his costs?
2: All of our clients, I can tell you exactly what you're saying is what everyone's saying. If it makes you feel any better, you are not alone. First and foremost, especially for SMEs, there is a lot of work that the UK government has tried to do to get people ready and. I don't think it maybe came across very well, but there are a lot of systems in place. There are, however, things that are outside of the government's control, one of which is obviously shipping costs. And with the known increase in demand for shipping for customs services and customs declarations at the borders, companies, hauliers, and brokers have taken advantage of that fact of saying, look, we only have so much capacity, therefore we can put up our prices It's supply and demand. And obviously, they have more requirements they have to satisfy as well. What we are seeing is that companies are having to make decisions to say, right now, those costs are going up because they just need someone to get the goods across the border, either in or out, and they need business to keep moving. But with the understanding that they're keeping in mind the service they've received, who they've worked with best, who has been able to deliver the services, for example, actually getting the goods across the border in a timely manner and compliantly, and saying, look, we're gonna start putting out tenders. We are starting to get through the first quarter now. We kind of have started to see what it's gonna look like. We're gonna start putting out bids and we're gonna lock prices in because we are starting to see increases of things. For example, a customs declaration pre-Brexit used to range between 30 and 50 pounds, depending on what you needed the broker to do. We were seeing quotes of 150 pounds of declaration it's ridiculous. And it's not something most businesses can afford. And they were having to make decisions, for example, not to import or export, just because they couldn't afford those costs. And now I would say, you know, you've seen what brokers you've worked with, the haulage companies, who you've worked with, who you trust, who you're comfortable with, start trying to get them locked into contracts, so you can start to control that pricing. There are other methods as well to be able to start to understand how maybe you can reduce pricing for things like multiple invoices and shipments on one customs declaration that can help bring costs down. But also, like you said, you are sharing haulage space with other companies. Well, a cost saving is the fact that you are waiting maybe a few extra days so that they can fill a container. Some of those days may need to be taken into account now. Thankfully, we are starting to see movement of the border increase in speed. So we're not, you know, the backed up car park that it was. But Companies are now having to make decisions, like with trade from the rest of the world, to say, am I more concerned about speed and efficiency, which means it may cost more, or am I more concerned about keeping my margins safe, which means I may need a little bit more time at the border. And those are some of the questions that, you know, working with someone and understanding what your priorities are and what you need to meet in terms of customer expectations You're also talking about the minimum orders. The reason why companies are doing that is they have taken those decisions themselves as a company to say to make this work financially you have to have so much of a minimum quantity for me to make it financially viable to ship because they are dealing with increased shipping costs. Um, obviously, the pandemic has put everything out of kilter. This is not a normal year we've had. And they are trying to recoup some of those costs. We also say, be very careful about these admin costs that you're seeing from your firms and from brokerage houses. And it's not always intentional. They're not trying to cheat you, for example. But because you may not understand what your requirements are, they're having to spend a lot of time to either try to guess what you're doing or maybe coming back to you with lots of questions. And because of that extra time, you're racking up costs with them. And so the first and foremost thing I always say to companies is you need to understand what your responsibilities are legally and what you have to communicate to your brokers and your haulage firms so that you are spending the least amount of time possible interacting with them. It makes everyone's life easier. But also, you know what costs you should be absorbing you know, should you be paying for licenses? Should you be paying how much for a declaration? How is it filled out? What are the types of things you have to do that are going to incur fees?
1: The thing is, what's very frustrating, this is often for things that we can't do ourselves. We physically can't, we haven't got access to the actual kind of, um, inf- you know, the portal or, or whatever it is that the customs agents have. So you asked me one of the questions earlier about what I would like to change and what could be helpful. Companies like ours could actually do a lot of this admin ourselves if we could get one set up, but I hear exactly what Alex is saying and I think it's very good advice. Is
0: anything like that in train, Alex? Is Is there a, a move from governments to try and put that in motion or will the market try and create websites that make things more user friendly for people who aren't dealing with huge shipments and and regular supplies.
2: You are able, if you obtain the right IT software and right licenses, to be able to do declarations, for example, for yourself. The difficulty is is that most companies don't have the time, the personnel, the ability to pay for all of those licenses, understand all of the information they'll need to, to lodge all of these declarations. And what is supposed to be happening is that you're paying, I would say, quote unquote, a simple fee for them to do all of those things for you. We're starting to see a bit of a hybrid where people are buying certain types of licensing software, they, where they can work with their brokers to give them a lot more information up front. And and this comes back to the fact of you have to know what it is you are legally responsible for, because if you are prepared, you can do a lot more. Providers like ourselves at Customs Connect or others will be available under those grants to provide those basic training. What we are now seeing is that some of our companies who had a very fast learning curve are operating very well, but they're being tripped up now by suppliers or customers on the European side who haven't quite met that level of education.
0: Is it almost a cultural change that British companies might have to go through whereby before a supplier would do everything they could to get their product to you, they knew how to do it. And you would just talk about the price and the quality of what they were delivering. Would Ed now, if he wants to persuade a supplier to ship to the UK, have to go to them and say, look, it it is actually easier than you think. These are the steps you need to take. It may be that we can help you take some of those steps together just so that we get this business relationship either flowing again or or flowing to start with.
2: I think it is a cultural shift. And it's not a cultural shift in the way that, you know, you're going to be begging suppliers to supply things they want to sell. I think there is and like Ed touched on, there's a bit of a reticence and there's a worry that suppliers are going to do things wrong or that they're not going to make it work for themselves financially because they don't know what to do either. And I think it's that reticence to almost have an open conversation to say, you know what, it's new to the both of us. And these are the questions both of us need to answer in terms of who's going to be the importer, who's going to be the exporter, what do we both legally have to do on our side of the border to make this work? And that answer isn't the same for everyone.
0: I wonder if we could perhaps switch now to talking about exports specifically from Ed's perspective. He told the story of uh, setting up essentially a new arm to the business during a pandemic and it was doing quite well. And then come January the 1st, No orders at all. And again, I'm sure, Alex, you'll tell him he's not alone. We've seen the stats for the exports from the UK to Europe. And I mean, the figures in Germany are frightening. What is going on here? How, how how can Ed persuade his customers that it is going to be a smooth and easy process going forward for them to get his his wonderful product?
2: The biggest thing is making it very clear that you know what you're doing to provide them confidence to buy from you. Because what they've had are very horrible circumstances where, like Ed has said, items just aren't appearing or they're all of a sudden being charged for customs duties and import fat that they didn't realize they were going to have. I think it's making sure that you as a company have taken into account every single thing you would want to communicate to your e com customers, because those are very different than businesses. We have the global providers that shall remain nameless that, you know, you order something and it's here tomorrow and all of a sudden everything seems taken care of. But most businesses can't do e-commerce that way. We're having to relearn how to do it. And there are steps to take, for example, how you're going to work with the imports. Are you going to use a distributor? Are you going to have someone act as an importer? And also how you ship it. Are you going to be shipping what we consider commercial shipping in the containers doing the traditional export declarations? Or are you taking the e-commerce route of using postal declarations? And they're very different and how they're received on the other side. So it's making sure that you understand as a company how you are going to do this and very clearly communicating to your customers upfront and big fonts, your shipping will take this many days. You potentially, for example, will be responsible for customs duties and import VAT, and this is what you'll be responsible for, or we're going to take that off the price, or how you want to deal with it, so that there are no surprises at the border. And when customers feel that confidence to say, I know exactly what's going to happen, we'll see that start to pick back up. And we are starting to see it in some locations, especially Ireland. That's kind of the number one where they have done this very clearly back and forth across the border, We are seeing that confidence return. I'm sure you can hear from my accent. I was born in the U.S. I'm dual American-British. When I order things from the U.S., on the very front page, when they figure out that my location is the U.K. to receive, they have big, bold letters in red to say what the shipping times are going to be, how much it's going to cost for international shipping, how much I'm going to pay for duties and import VAT. And they make it very clear so I can make that decision with confidence.
0: Ed, have you, I know it's only a tiny part of your business in, in terms of exporting to domestic customers on the continent, but have you thought about strategizing that side of your business already or are you actually focusing on the bigger fish that that, that makes up your bread and butter?
1: We've parked it for now. We're redesigning our offering actually completely Um, with, with some of those things that that Alex has mentioned. We will be, we'll be tackling those. But I think, yeah, you're right for the time being, we've just parked that in the to-do later box. <laughs> what
0: can Alex tell you that might help speed that process up or is it you just want to keep your core business ticking over nicely?
1: We're quite used to shipping larger volumes and shipping around the world I mean we've got plenty of experience you know doing customs and you know shipping to the US for instance and even Australia and coming back to that cultural shift it's just that our European customers just they just aren't used to that they've got to have this huge market on their doorstep unless they order something from America or China or They're just not used to that whole process. So I think it's just going to be a matter of time. There will be companies that will kind of fill the void, I'm sure, um, that will help us. I don't think it's going to be as lucrative as it it could have been. Obviously, I'm I'm sure the trade will pick back up again to a point. But I I think our eyes are definitely looking elsewhere for, for growth at the moment.
0: If I didn't share Ed's phlegmatic attitude to this, Alex, and I was very concerned about the possibility that this would cause long-term damage to my business if if my customers in Germany and France and Italy and Greece who might like the look of my products but actually just thought oh I'll, I'll get it from Hans in Germany instead because then I don't really have to think too much about it. Is there anything being done to address that potential or, or is it is the market finding a way as, as Ed um, feels it might?
2: I think it's both obviously over time confidence will return when when we sort of get to a status quo of this is how it's going to operate. It's still very new to everyone, but there are things that are being set up. There are a lot of companies who are working as quote unquote distributors and operators for these types of e-commerce. You know, especially when you think of things like clothing retail, that's a very big market for them in Europe. So there are, Providers that are providing distribution, bulk shipping, and also repacking services for these types of e-commerce type operations to help with the legalities of, for example, establishment tax considerations, returns, those types of things that e-commerce has as a very particular concern. So there are setups for e-commerce. It's just one of those that is unfortunately not very well publicized, but there are there. And so it's worth having a conversation you know, with customs and and transport experts to say, you know, this is my setup, this is what I would like to do, what are my potential options, and what are the costs associated with it to see is there a way that you can make this much more streamlined and provide that confidence for a very large market over in Europe.
0: Where do you see Very Good and Proper going in the future, Ed? What are you thinking now as CEO and where you'd like to take the business over the next five years? Sounds like a job interview, this doesn't it?
1: Yeah, we are definitely gravitating our efforts towards America. I mean, we, we have been relatively strong there. The UK market obviously is is extremely important for us and always has been. In terms of our business in Europe, I reckon it's going to go back back to the old kind of old style kind of distribution type relationship possibly where we'll have to find a partner up with someone over there who's quite happily to take on all of the distribution and, and and do it that way i suspect there's going to be some something like that i i think the one thing that i'm more worried about actually is the way that our industry works is through trade shows which have obviously been curtailed because of the pandemic but international trade shows that generally are always in europe and that's an international buying market so if it's going to be more difficult for us as a brand going to those sort of types of trade shows, we do meet American, Australian and Japanese and all these other markets that the government wants us to, to try to get into. We meet them in Europe. We don't necessarily meet those people in the UK. We haven't got the equivalent support in this country.
2: I will make you feel a lot better, Ed, about this. Um, oh, I can <laughs> assure you that trade shows are going to be set up for this. Um, they will already be aware and they will actually have extra time to prepare now because COVID hasn't allowed the ones we've been supposed to be going to. They are going to have this set up. There are customs operations that are available for trade shows, for traders to be able to bring goods in and out without penalty. And also there are going to be dedicated normally for most of the larger trade shows, carriers and customs brokers who will be there specifically to deal with the trade show. So if you are concerned about attending one of those in Europe, get in touch with them. They will normally have a named provider that they can put you in touch with who will know all of the protocols to put in place so that you can get your goods in for the trade show, You know, do what you do best to market yourselves and get you back out without any problems.
1: Good. Well, that's good to know.
2: Ed,
0: thank you so much for your time. That's Ed from Very Good and Proper. Check out the amazing website, verygoodandproper.co.uk. And Alexandra Turner, Head of Customs and Export Control at Customs Connect. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank
1: you.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the Brexit Ready podcast for the London Business Hub. If some of the issues raised by our discussion today have got you thinking about what you might need to do next the London Business Hub is here to help. You can book an appointment with one of their EU specialist advisors who can help you work through the issues that might affect your business. They can also provide free specialist support from employment lawyers, accountants specialising in the new VAT regime and experts on IP and data. To find out more, go to www.businesshub.london.